For the past two weeks, my colleague Rukmini Kalamaki has been reporting from the Iraqi city of Mosul with daily producer Andy Mills. Let's start at the camp. Can you just tell me, what was this camp that we were at that morning? Uh, this is one of several camps that, that was set up uh, to basically house people who were fleeing uh, ISIS and fleeing the airstrikes that rained down on western Mosul um, as, as the city was being retaken from the terror group. And what does it look like? It looks like we're at the gates of a sprawling uh, refugee camp that's been built uh, in, uh, on the outskirts of western Mosul. I mean, you approach it and you pass a chain-link fence uh, with a checkpoint. Um, and as soon as you go in, it's row after row after row, quite literally as far as the eye can see, of igloo-like tents made of sheeting and plastic and metal. Yeah, there's two little kids. Uh, they've made a kite out of pieces of trash. It's incredibly hot in this part of Mosul right now, over 114 degrees, and many of the tents don't have any cooling system. We got there and we went to see the camp director. He had his office inside a trailer. Uh, my name is Rukmini. This is Andy. Hello. Uh, I wanted to speak to civilians that have just left uh, the most badly affected neighborhoods of western Mosul. We'd come there to interview people who had just left Western Mosul, and he randomly mentioned... ...that three Yazidi women had shown up the night before and that they were acting abnormally. They were refusing to take off their niqabs. She's completely like that. She's completely covered. She not accept to open her face. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yazidi women are not are not veiled in that manner. They 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 leave their faces open. So she said you are strange for me. What? I'm strange. This is Daesh uh, ideology. Ideology. Oh my God. They were calling themselves Muslim. Uh, Yazidis are from a different religion, and they were referring to the men who had held them and who had kidnapped them as their husbands, not their rapists. And he's a shaheed martyr. He's a martyr. Oh my God. They were calling them shaheeds, which means uh, a martyr. I have spent a lot of time working on the Yazidi issue. I've never seen anything, I've never heard of anything like this. Could you just remind me real quick, who are the Yazidi? The Yazidis are a minority in Iraq. There are about half a million Yazidis, most of them in Iraq. They have their own religion. They follow an ancient religion derived from Zoroastrianism. They lived in and around a mountain in northern Iraq known as Sinjar Mountain. One of their beliefs is that Mount Sinjar is where Noah's Ark came to rest. And you might remember that in 2014... Tonight we're on the ground in Iraq and we're learning more about those stranded members of a religious minority. Some horrific stories are emerging. Their homeland, which is on Sinjar Mountain, was overrun by ISIS. Tens of thousands fled the weekend assault on Sinjar and are now surrounded. On the news, there were images of helicopters landing on this mountain, picking up 
people, women, children, and American forces back in action in Iraq. It was also a pivotal moment for the Obama administration. On Friday, U.S. planes struck in northern Iraq against the Islamic militants known as ISIS. Which decided to get involved in this conflict uh, to to push back ISIS, uh, beginning airstrikes then as a result of what was happening to the Yazidi people. But then we didn't know it right away, and, and in fact, we didn't piece it together for months. But in the same period when ISIS attacked Sinjar Mountain, um, they kidnapped thousands of women and girls who were subsequently enslaved uh, and raped. And so we, we set out to try to find them, and we got a tip which led us to two of the three women that were there that morning in another camp. Yeah. And we just noticed right away, people came out carrying uh, soft drinks and Cokes and uh, baskets of, of goods. <coughs> it was clearly a moment when, when the families and friends of these young women who had been missing for three years were showing up to check in and, and, and show support. Then we were led to the tent, um, we ducked in, and as soon as I put my head inside oh there, I just realized we had no place being there. Oh my God, yeah, they look very sick. These young women just, they, they looked catatonic. I mean, they looked like they had fainted or, or maybe were in a coma or something. People were talking all around them, but they were, they, they were out. And their, their mother or sister were just there with their eyes bloodshot. And I think I just turned to you at that point and I said that I, I, that I think we needed to go. Uh, Fana, the, the woman who was weeping inside, that was the mother of the girls? Mother, yeah. Oh my God. Mother. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So we stepped outside the tent and we were off to the side um, and we were trying to figure out what to do next. And at that point, uh, one of the uncles of the young women stepped out of the tent. I saw him crying as he was coming out. Can he say why? And he just broke down crying, you know, in front of us. We ended up just kind of standing there, you know, with him as he as he wept. I mean, I think I think those two young women, to them, represent what's happened to their people. I mean, that was really sad. This is a really delicate thing right now, you know, because obviously the journalist in me wants to push as hard as I can to get these interviews, but. But it's obvious that that would be just, in this particular moment, that would be really rude and unkind. Um, these are people that are really wounded right now. Um, I mean, I was, I was confused about what was happening. What I saw were, were two women who were lying on the ground, who looked very ill and who looked very unwell. And that, that doesn't necessarily jive with, you know, the image of women who were claiming that they were that they had converted to Islam and and were praising their husbands as martyrs. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out is 
what do we do now? Because of the state that they were in, I essentially gave up. I mean, I we went back to the hotel and I was getting ready to go back to back to her bill. And as we were getting ready to leave, I heard of another woman. And I thought, okay, let's just go see her. Um, so you and I got into the car with our Yazidi driver and we drove to this other refugee camp in a different direction. Hello, thank you. Thank you. Um, when we got there, yeah. the young woman's uncle was basically standing waiting for us. Yes, and this is Andy? Rukmini. And he led us into the tent. And yet again, oh my God, there was a young woman. It was exactly the same thing. She was lying down, bundled in this fuzzy blanket, even though it was 114 degrees outside. She could, she didn't even have the strength to hold up her own head. Um, she would flop back down on the mattress as soon as she tried. She's tired. She's so tired. Yeah. About four days, I, I received her from Mosul. Yeah. Yeah. The difference there was that her family specifically her uncle, was really adamant that her story needed to get out. And uh, can I just ask, is it okay if we use her name? Should we just say a 16-year-old girl? How, how does he want her to be identified? Say it's okay, it's our matter. We want the people to know the reality, even if the photo is used, there is no problem. He kept on saying, I want the world to know what has happened to the Yazidi people. But is she okay also? It's okay. And we asked her as well. And she affirmed this. Could you paint a picture for me what that what that looked like? It reminded me, I mean this is gonna sound maybe a little far fetched, but it reminded me of the Pieta, you know, the those images of the Virgin Mary holding Christ after his crucifixion. A whole interview was conducted with him, leaning over her, putting his ear essentially a couple inches from her mouth, whispering the question to her, she whispering it back. Um, and it was, it was an incredibly tender scene. You know, I mean, she's lying there without any strength, even though medically, I don't think there's anything gravely wrong with her. Um, you know, he said that the doctor had pinpointed a urinary infection and maybe some malnutrition, but that doesn't explain somebody who can't hold up their head. And she told us her story as, as best as she could, and her story was horrific. Her name is Suhaila. Her birth is 2001. So she's 16. She's 16. Uh, that means that she was kidnapped when she was 13. That was her. Mm. He showed us a picture on his cell phone of um, of what she looked like. She, she, she was happy and she was laughing yeah. And she just looks like this, you know, this chubby little elementary school girl. Um, how many times was she sold? She was kidnapped. Nine times. Yeah. She was uh, sold to nine different men. She wasn't raped by two of them. She was raped by the other seven. Seven of whom raped her. Sorry, that's so, so personal. Did they give her birth control? All of them gave her birth control. Yeah, first rape, they injected her. 
the first one. The first one injected her. Injected her. Yeah, she don't know what what was the injection, and the others use use the pills. Um, she talked about how some of them uh, prayed uh, before and after the rape. Yes. In a way that suggested to her that this was to them a spiritual exercise. Um, at one point, Suhaila pointed to her wrist uh, and um, and explained to us that she had tried to kill herself. She told him, if you you touch me, I will suicide. And really, she tried to suicide and she has the trauma on her. So her wrist was, was scarred from the place where she had tried to, to cut her veins uh, and end her life because of the pain that she was suffering. Can you tell him the girls that we met this morning... When they came to the camp, they were telling the camp administrator that they're Muslim, that their ISIS captor was their husband. So at this point in the interview, I, I just started to wonder about um, these two types of abnormal behavior that I had seen uh, both in her and in the two other women we had seen that morning. Number one, this apparent buying in to ISIS's uh, propaganda or ideology. Can he explain why they're speaking like this, these Yazidi girls? And number two, the, this weakness, you know, the, the, the coma-like state where they, where they appear to be in, in a deep, almost unconscious state for most of the day. And he explained to me that that they had been so indoctrinated and so brainwashed after three years of being with these fighters. They don't believe what is going on on the ground because they brainwashed. But when they see the truth, everything is changing. They had no TV. They had no access to the outside world. And so they, 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 they believed what they said to them. They were thinking that even Kurdistan, Shingal, and everywhere become Islamic State. Which is that ISIS has essentially taken over the world and that their homeland, Sinjar, and pretty much everywhere else is now their dominion. Um, and I started to wonder if that explains what the camp director saw about these two uh, women earlier, namely that, that they're saying they're Muslim. Well, are they saying it because they believe that or are they saying it because they think that ISIS is everywhere, you know, including in this camp? Until now, she, she don't believe. So, Suhaila, I pulled out my iPhone. This is the Peshmerga. Peshmerga? Peshmerga. Okay. In Sinjar. Because I happened to be there uh, the day that, that Sinjar was liberated. I was embedded with Kurdish troops when that happened. Uh, on Sinjar Mountain. Yeah. In, no, in November, November of 2015. I scrolled all the way back through my photos. And does she recognize this? This is, this is on top of Sinjar Mountain. And I showed her the pictures, you know, you know, slide by slide, of me in a Kevlar helmet uh, next, to, next to Kurdish troops, us at the main um, telephone antenna, uh, a well-known landmark on the top of Sinjar Mountain. This is where the PKK was staying. Okay. This is, this is uh, Shingal. On, on the very entry of Shingal. Yeah. And I noticed that you were doing that. She sort of started to sit up very slowly. Yeah, she pulled herself up. Literally, she was holding a railing uh, inside the tent and w- with all her strength, you know, pulled herself up, her uncle pushing her. Her mood has changed. Her uncle and her, you know, were, were talking back and forth. Um, with, with him pointing at things and saying, see, see this, see that, see this. 
You know, she she looked very carefully at my phone. Just like this, yeah. She was she was clearly intrigued, and then you know, and then we asked her, you know, Sohila. I mean, she still doesn't believe me that Shingal has. Do you believe me? You know, like I've just shown you all these pictures. Do you believe me that Centaur is now free? And she's smiling. I think she's smiling. She smiled. And then she gave a little laugh. And then she said, She says, I don't believe until I see by my eyes. I still want to see this for myself. By the way, we've been invited to go with her whenever she feels, whenever she gets her strength back, to go back to Sinjar and prove to her that Sinjar is not under Islamic State rule. She's invited us to come. She's invited us to come. She was on the phone today and she sounded a lot better today. We'll be right back. Here's what else you need to know today. The honor of serving as attorney general is something that uh, uh, goes beyond any thought I would have ever had for myself. We love this job. We love this department. And I plan to continue to do so as long as uh, that is appropriate. Jeff Sessions says he plans to stay in his job, despite the president saying in an interview with The Times that he would never have appointed him if he'd known Sessions would recuse himself from the Russia investigation. That recusal ultimately led to the appointment of a special prosecutor in the case, Robert Mueller, which has infuriated the president. But during a news conference on Thursday, Sessions insisted that the president had not undermined his ability to carry out his duties. Attorney General Sessions, how do you feel like you can effectively serve from here on out if you don't have the confidence of the president? We're serving right now. The work we're doing today is the kind of work that we intend to continue. And, Mr. Simpson, I do vote to grant parole when eligible. And that will conclude this hearing. Thank you. O.J. Simpson has been granted parole. Prison officials in Carson City, Nevada, voted unanimously for his release after serving nine years for his role in a 2007 armed robbery of a sports memorabilia dealer. Simpson could be out of prison as soon as October. Are you humbled by this incarceration? Oh, yes, for sure. As I said, I wish it would have never happened. Uh, if I would have made a, a, a better judgment back then, um, uh, none of this would have happened. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Lindsay Garrison, Rachel Quester, Andy Mills, and Christopher Worth. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Lansford of Wonderly. Special thanks to Martha Daniel, Michaela Bouchard, Peter Sale, and Pedro Rosado. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you Monday.